to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on August 27, 2019 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was unexpected. Please welcome William Mullen. There was, um, uh, it was a really amazing, un unexpected moment about a year and a half, was it a year and a half ago when Vanessa put out a call for a co-host for The Mosquito, and I replied, and we've been having a great time ever since, and it's just a wonderful show. I, I love it so much. Um, unexpected, wow. There were so many stories that were going through my head when I was like thinking, what should I tell tonight? Um, when I graduated from Boston University in the early 90s, any BU alum out there? No? <laughs> what, really? <laughs> that wasn't convincing. <laughs> did, did you graduate? <laughs> She's like, <laughs> kind of still have a, like a couple of years to go. Um, uh, the economy back then was horrible. It was, no one was hiring. And I had a writing degree and a, a performing degree. And I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I did what every other person in my situation did. I was living in Boston and I went out seeking work as a waiter. And the one place in Boston where you really wanted to work was legal seafoods. It was amazing. It was like the place. There were rumors that in some of the legal seafoods, waiters made thousands a night. So I immediately went and I applied to legal seafoods at Park Plaza, and I never heard back. And I was like, oh, you know what? I have to craft a strategy. So I went to every legal, and I put in a separate application. And I got called in for an interview at the legal seafoods in Kendall Square in Cambridge. And they hired me. Yes! But before I could hit the floor, I had to take a one and a half week course called Scrod School. <laughs> where you had to learn all the intricacies of every fish available, how it's prepared, the background, even the spawning grounds of the fish, the seasonality. It was intense. And it was led by this lead waiter named Christy, who had been with Legal Seafood since it was like a shack in Edmond Square. And she was a gruff woman. She had this raspy voice from years of yelling at the kitchen. And she was just very tough, as many people would categorize as a lesbian. And she would, like, she would make sure we knew our fish. She's just like, how is the rainbow trout prepared? We're like, baked or occasion? She's like, is that it? Well, with exception world, okay. We're like, <laughs> so we knew our fish at the end of this course. Now, even though I graduated from Scrod School, I, I was not an A waiter. I was not really an all-star waiter. Because one, I didn't care. <laughs> Two, I hated the stress of it. It's a very stressful profession. And then three, as much as I tried, I never could memorize the specials that the chef prepped us with before we went onto the floor. They were just so complicated. So I would approach the table, start with the specials, 
forget them, and then just make the rest up. <laughs> and patrons were surprised what hit their table as opposed to what I just described to them. To like, isn't this supposed to be halibut? No, haddock, haddock. Um, the chef messed up, just eat it anyway. It's amazing, it's legal seafoods. Everything's fresh. So one day during a very slow lunch shift, and that's all they gave you when you first started out, and it was like my third month there, but I was still on lunch shifts. Um, I was so hungover from the night before, and I was so grateful that it was slow, it was rainy, and there was no one in the restaurant. All I wanted to do was drink coffee, relax, and just shoot the shit with my favorite servers in the side station. I just thanked my lucky stars. And then a party walked in, a large party, um, to, the, to the host stand. They were waiting for the, the hostess. And uh, there was a palpable buzz going around the restaurant. And I kind of peeked over the edge. I looked, and there was a very tall woman with her much shorter friends waiting for the hostess. And I looked closely, and I realized the tall woman was Julia Child. <laughs> And the hostess came, got the menus, and began to proceed to bring them to the floor of the restaurant. If you could see the waiters in the side station, as she proceeded to go to the direction of my section, <laughs> it was like a slow motion car accident. <laughs> they were going, no, 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 she's not doing that. And I was like, no, no. Please don't. No, no, no. No, it was too late. She plopped him right down into a seat in my section. And all of a sudden, the side station turned into like a scene from Rocky. Like, servers were massaging my shoulders, like, you can do it, champ. Just go out there. Just remember the specials. Get the waters. You can do it. Come on. So I go out there, and lo and is miraculous. I remember the specials flawlessly. And to my surprise, the orders were pretty straightforward. I go around the table, bluefish, haddock, halibut, shrimp, arctic char. And then there was a pause at Julia Child. And she goes, how fresh is your Jonah crab claw? <laughs> now, I know I've seen this menu item before. I don't know what it is. And I have no idea how fresh it is. But it's legal seafood, so my best leave it to beaver voice. I'm like, it's the freshest. <laughs> she wasn't convinced. And then she goes, do you have bay scallops? And I had no idea what bay scallops were, as opposed to the regular scallops that were listed on the menu. But I'd be damned if I was going to show my ignorance to Julia Child or tell her that like, oh, I don't know, I gotta check with the kitchen. So I was like, this is legal seafoods. So I'm like, of course we do. She's like, oh great, I would like them lightly sauteed with Spanish paprika. I was like, done, Julia Child. So I go and I march to order back into this kitchen where all the staff was eagerly awaiting like the order from Julia Child. And Christy goes and she grabs the order from me, hands it to the restaurant manager, who hands it to the chef, who starts barking at his line cooks the order, like halibut, argchar, haddock, shrimp. What the fuck? <laughs> bay scallops? Who the freak ordered bay scallops? And I was like, um, Julia Child ordered the bay scallops. 
William, we haven't had bay scallops since the turn of the century. They've been fished out of Massachusetts Bay <laughs> for hundreds of years. I was like, that wasn't in the course. And then, of course, Chrissy's like, you just lied to Julia Child about food? I was like, so a panic envelops in the kitchen, and the restaurant manager comes over, and he goes, nice and quietly, he goes, know what you have to do, William, you have to go out there, get back on that horse, and tell Julia Child she's got to order something else. I was so humiliated, so I started my slow march back to Julia Child's table, thinking, how am I going to apologize to Julia Child that I lied to her? And I, I'm almost reaching the table where Christy comes from nowhere, knocks me out of the way, and <laughs> explains to Julia Child that it was my first day, that I'm in training, I know nothing about fish, <laughs> and she's very sorry, but she has to order something else. Julie Child shoots me this look of the most dis disappointed look you'd ever seen in your life. Like a mother just found out that her son was stealing from her. And she goes and she goes, well then I'll have the Jonah Crab Claw then. And she bows her head and continues a conversation with her very short friends. <laughs> As for me, I lasted at Legal Seafood for a few months, but not before having a panic attack when any woman over five foot 10 entered the restaurant. <laughs> All right, that's my story. Are you, Are you guys ready for your first storyteller of the evening? All right. Put your hands together for Vera S. Vera S. My dad had a really weird, rare kidney disorder, and we didn't learn about it for years and years after he was diagnosed with it, because in typical my father fashion, how are you doing? Great, fine. And, you know, and I'd speak to my stepmother, and she would tell me, oh, yeah, we're going to the doctor. We're flying to the mainland. They live in Hawaii. Uh, have some tests done. But every time I spoke to my dad, everything was fine. So when I finally learned about this thing, um, he was starting dialysis in about a week. So you know it went from fine to really shitty pretty quickly. Um, and so, you know, my family is your typical dysfunctional family, and I've got a brother and a sister, and um, uh, let's just say my father was not the most attentive father in the world, so there was, uh, there's a bit, little bit of tension between my siblings and him. Uh, but when we found out that he needed to have a kidney transplant, you know, I, I, I was the first one, you know, I'll go get tested, uh, see if I'm a match. And because of some stuff that I had going on um, trying to have another child, my father's like, no, you're not doing this. And so I just expected my brother or my sister would just jump up and say, I'll do the test. I'll, I'll see if I'm a match. But alas, that did not happen. Um, so... Yeah, it made me think twice about my role as a mother and, uh, <laughs> and maybe be a little bit nicer and let them have peanut butter and jelly for lunch. I don't know. But anyway, um, so, the, uh, so my father and my father and my stepmother call me about a month later and tell me that they found a donor. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. How did, well, actually, yeah. 
I was going to rewind and say that my uh, my stepmother, ironically, was a match, but because of her age, they wouldn't let her do it. So that was a bit of a disappointment. But then they told us that they had a match. So I was like, wow, that's great. Was it from a list? Like, how did this come about? And as it turned out, it was the ex-husband of my sister. And they had always had kind of a tumultuous relationship, to say the least. Um, their marriage did not last, um, but civility kind of ended sooner than their marriage did, uh, just to give you a sense of, of, of that love. Um, but as it turned out, it was my brother-in-law who was the match for this. And I, I just, I could not believe that not only was he a match and he lived all the way in Australia, but he was willing to do something for his ex-wife's father, because as far as he was concerned, she could die in a ditch and he would be so happy. <laughs> um, but um, so as it turns out, he, you know, he heard about what was going on, not through my sister, of course, because actually I'm not even sure my sister knew what was going on with my dad. That's, you know, or if she heard about it, she's just like, ah, fuck him. Uh, but it was... Uh, it, it was it was pretty cool. So he came to America and you know got cut cut open and gave him a kidney. And I've got to be honest. I mean, I was never the biggest fan of his just because of you know you you protect your sister and you want the best for her and you don't want anybody um, treating her like uh, like a slave. I think yeah. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but so he came to America and he and he gave my dad his kidney and. Uh, they both recovered, and they're both alive and well and, and doing their thing. And let's just say that was very unexpected. <laughs> so there you go. OK, please welcome to the stage next, Steve Cola. Steve Cola. It was the fall of 1970. I was 11 years old and living in Flushing, New York. For those of you who don't know yet, there's a shout out, thank you. That's in New York City, part of Queens. And like most 11-year-old boys back then, and keep in mind, there was no such thing as Nintendo or Xbox or PlayStation. So we were crazy about sports. And it was a good time to be sports crazy in New York back then. The New York Mets, the Miracle Mets, had just won the World Series in that last year behind uh, their ace Tom Seaver, the real Tom Terrific, not like the wannabe in Foxborough. <laughs> and uh, yes, the courts just decided that one. Um, and Walt Clyde Frazier led the Knicks to the NBA championship. And Broadway Joe Namath led the, the Jets to win their first Super Bowl. So it was a great time to be uh, a, a sports-crazed kid in New York. And so that's what we did when we were 11 years old. We, played sports, we watched sports, we read about sports, we talked sports. It was, you know, so I was a typical 11-year-old kid dealing with my insecurities and trying to learn how to talk to girls without breaking into a sweat, that kind of thing. And life was pretty good. I was in sixth grade, just started that fall. And things were going along fine until one day I found out they had redrawn the zoning for the school district. And the school the junior high school that I was thought I'd be attending seventh grade in, which was across the street from my elementary school for seven years, where my older brother went and 
nearly all the kids in my class would be going, I'd be going to a different school. And it kind of hit me hard. Um, there were about 34 kids in my class probably in sixth grade. And back then, they had what they called tracking. You stayed every year with the same group of kids. They thought that keeping the kids who were smarter together would be easier for the teachers to teach too. So if you were in honors class, you stayed with those kids. So from first grade on, half the kids then were in my same class in sixth grade. And by third or fourth grade, we were a very tight bunch. And all of a sudden, I found out there were only maybe seven or eight of us out of over 30 that were going to the new school. But two of those kids were among my two best friends, a couple of guys. And so what could I do? I said, that's what it's going to be. So I'll still know people. I'll be OK. Well, then a couple of months later, one day, I was talking to one of those two friends. And even though he had grown up in New York, his parents were both British. And he had their British accent and was sort of their formal way of speaking. Everybody, I was pretty much Steve to everybody, but he called me Stephen. And he said, um, we were somehow talking about the new school we'd be going to. And he said, uh, Stephen, um, I have to tell you something, okay? I'm not going to be going to the new school. I'm going to be going to the same old school as everyone else. What do you mean? Well, my parents and I had discussed it, and they thought it would be better for me to go to this other school, and I would prefer to go there. And, well, they just put down his grandmother's address as his new address for the school. And she lived in the district, so that was fine. Well, that was like a punch in the stomach to me, here than that. And then he said, and um, this other friend of ours, he said, uh, the one, the other boy who would be, lived in the same street as us, he won't be going either. What do you mean? Well, his father was a psychologist and had a colleague friend who wrote a letter to the schools telling them that it would be detrimental to his well-being if he were separated from his friends at this age. So all of a sudden, I was on my own. And so it was a one-two punch. And I was kind of in a daze and went home and told my parents. And I gave them, you can imagine, it's not fair. How can it be? Why can't we do something? Let's, you know. And they listened, and they, they were upset, too, I could see, for me, and said, well, I don't know if, we don't know if there's anything we can do, but let us think about it. And Well, I don't know if it was the next day or two days later, but they sat me down, and they said, you know, we've thought about it, and there's really nothing that we can do. I was angry with my friend's parents, who had scammed the system. I was upset with my parents that they couldn't do anything. I was resentful of my friends who got what I wanted to stay with all my old friends. But that was it. So my parents again, my mom said all the right things. Oh, you're friendly. You'll be make new friends. You'll be okay. You'll stay friends with your old friends. You'll stay in touch. And of course, as usual, she was right. First day, first day at my new school, there was a boy there named Randy who had just moved from the Bronx to Queens, didn't know a soul. Turned out he lived two blocks from me. 
We walked home from school that day. He was a great kid. We became best friends, walked to and from school every day for two years together. Um, my old friend stayed in touch. I got invited to all the bar mitzvahs in seventh grade. Um, in fact, uh, you know, then high school, two year, couple of years later, back together with most of them. Um, two of those friends from elementary school are still among my closest friends today. Um, so I survived, and you know, maybe it's like the old saying about what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I don't know if it's true or not, because I don't know what would have happened the other way, but that wasn't the last unexpected thing. So some years later, I was probably eight, 18 or 19, and somehow that episode in my life came up in conversation between me and my mom. And she said, you know, by the way, we didn't want to tell you this at the time because we didn't think it was what you really needed to hear, but your father and I sp spoke a lot and thought long and hard about it. And we probably could have done something, but we didn't want to teach you and send you the message that it was okay to lie or cheat to get what you wanted. And I, you know, I said, I can appreciate that now, and probably right not to tell me back then. I don't think I would have been able to absorb it in the same way. And my dad passed away seven years ago, and my mom just passed away earlier this month. And so obviously been thinking a lot about her and conversations like that that I had with her and made me appreciate what wonderful parents I had. Thank you. Put your hands together for Sean Bailey. Come on to the stage. I got fired for my first job. I'll tell you why in a second. I grew up in the 60s. I was the third son of four, an Irish Catholic family in suburban New Jersey. I was born in 1959. And my older brothers were born in the early 50s. They were seven and eight years older than me. They got to experience the boomer youth culture in a way that I could only observe and yearn to be part of, like the younger brother who really wanted to be like them. And you could see that in the first record I ever bought, an album called Rubber Soul by the Beatles. And I came home with it and presented it to them, and they were happy to have it in their record collection, which we played in their room. And it was in that room that they also introduced me to WNEWFM, the groundbreaking progressive rock station in New York City. I was especially fond of Allison Steele, the Nightbird. She was the nighttime jock, the overnight jock, and she would recite poems and atmospheric space trips between songs. <laughs> I was a fan, and I listened all the way through high school. In the fall of 1980, I was attending college in the mountains of Western North Carolina, a place that couldn't be more different than suburban New Jersey. And it was December, 
a December night and I was preparing for finals in my dorm room and I heard a voice from the hallway. John Lennon is dead. He's been shot in New York City. <clears throat> my friends came into the room stunned at the news and I was too. I turned on the student radio station, which was a station the complete opposite of WNEW FM. And I knew that because I worked there on the weekends. It was a slavishly oriented top 40 station. It was not progressive, it was not alternative, it was not hip. Um, and I, like I said, I knew that because I was there on the weekends doing the sports report. This is Sean Bailey reporting for WASU, setting the pace in the Southern Conference. <laughs> so I knew that on this night that the station was going to need some help. So I picked up the phone and I called the DJ, the on-air jock. Her name was TJ, the DJ. And I said, TJ, this is a big event. You need to play Beatles music the rest of the night. And she said, OK. And I hung up. And within a minute or two, on came John Lennon's latest hit, Starting Over, which was actually in the top 40 at the time. And I thought, OK, this is the beginning of the tribute. But within a minute or two, that song was over. And on came Kenny Rogers <laughs> singing Lady, I'm your knight in shining armor, and I love you. <laughs> well, I was outraged, and my friends were outraged. And I, I grabbed the phone, and I called TJ again, and I said, TJ, this is an historic event. This is a moment in history. This is a watershed in the history of rock and roll. You've got to play Beatles music for the rest of the night. She refused. I can't do that. That would be breaking the format. That's against the rules. And she hung up the phone on me. And that's when I had my Howard Beale moment. <laughs> and I looked at my friends and I said, I'm angry as hell, and I'm taking over the radio station. Who's coming with me? <laughs> A few minutes later, I was showing three friends the station's record collection, a wall of albums. And they started pulling the Beatles albums, and I, I went into the studio and informed TJ that she would be playing Beatles music the rest of the night. And she didn't like that, but finally she accepted it, and we started our tribute, playing a few cuts off the White Album. And um, you know, before long, we had a pile of LPs for TJ to play. And I walked back into the newsroom where the AP machine was clacking away with updates from New York. And so I started ripping and reading these to my friends there in the control room. And TJ finally says, well, why don't you get in the studio over there and you can read the updates live on the air between songs, we'll go back and forth. I said, okay. And we did that and it was great. It went something like this. A crowd of 300 people have gathered outside the Dakota. 
Some are holding candles. Many are weeping. Hey, Jude, don't let... You know, back and forth like that, it was, it was, it was good. And that's how we really started to get into the groove. And we'd have um, a Beatles song, and then a news update, and a Beatles song, and then a news update, and we were really getting into the groove. Uh, and I, I was ecstatic uh, because I thought, this is what Allison Steele and WNEW would be doing. The phones started to, the phones started to ring, and the um, people were um, uh, calling in requests. And uh, before long, we got to the end of the evening. And I had to decide what would be our last song. Well, naturally, Imagine would be your last song. So I called for Imagine. It wasn't there. The album had been stolen. So then I, I, I went the other way, a very dark pick. And we closed out the night with, happiness is a warm gun. Bang, bang, shoot, shoot. The next morning, I was summoned to the radio station manager's <laughs> office. You forced TJ to break the radio format. You got on the air and reported news, and you're in the sports department. We could lose our license. And I tried to defend myself and said, well, no one else came down to report the news. And she said, you're fired. Never come to this radio station again. And so that's how I was fired from my first job ever in radio. And it launched my career in newspapers. And, um, but a few years later, I was, I was on campus and finishing up some business, and I ran into a friend. And the friend invited me to go visit his cousin, who was staying in a dorm on the college's, uh, the school's progressive college, a place where hippie values still existed. And so a few minutes later, we're in there, and we're playing some music and talking about uh, life. And all of a sudden, the cousin grabs a Beatles album, and he says, hey, did you guys ever hear the story about the night John Lennon died and a guy took over the radio station? <laughs> And I said, yeah, that's me. Yeah. And in that moment, I had the unexpected feeling of recognizing that I had passed into college dorm room folklore. <laughs> I was the guy who took over the radio station the night John Lennon died. Come on, Jerry Riley. I've got a really weird hobby. I've been doing it for years. And what I like to do is I like to take something really unexpected, something inexplicable, and spring it on unsuspecting members of the public. And I've been doing this for years and years. So I, just recently I did one of these, and it kind of got out of hand, and I want to tell you about this. So a little background information. Um, <clears throat> I live a, a, a block from the Charles River in... Newton Upper Falls, where the river goes over a waterfall and through a gorge. And across the gorge, on top of the gorge, there's a 19th century granite bridge, this huge structure with a pedestrian path across the top. And if you're up in that bridge, the river, Echo Bridge, exactly. 
And uh, if you're up on that bridge, the river is like way down there. So that's a little background information. The other thing is, I run the Newton Pneumatic Theater, a little theater up there. And we did a play in the spring, and it was called Colder Than Here. And it's a pl the play, the story of the play is about a family. The mother is uh, dying of cancer, and she's planning her own funeral. She wants to have a green funeral, and her family's freaking out. And, and a prop in this play is a cardboard coffin that she wants to be buried in, or casket, or whatever. So the play ran for five weeks, and uh, last performance, and I'm at the house, and I'm unloading everything. And I'm like, what am I going to do with this coffin? There's got to be something to do with this coffin. So the next week, I built this big wooden frame in the backyard, and I screwed the coffin to the top of it. And then on the Friday night of Memorial Day weekend, at about 11 o'clock, two friends and I took this thing uh, down to the river and put it in the river, and the, the frame sunk below the water, and the coffin was up above the water. And then we put a canoe in, and we tied it, and we paddled up the river towing this coffin. And, oh, and we put uh, a body in the coffin. It was a, a, a dummy, and, I ha and the head was a skull that I had from Halloween. And we towed this thing up into the middle of the river, right below the bridge, and threw an anchor. And then we paddled home, and I went to sleep. <laughs> so the next day was Saturday. Saturday, there's a lot of people in the park and on the bridge. And I just entertained myself all day Saturday, going down to the bridge and watching the reactions. And the reactions were just great. And people wandered across the bridge. They looked and like, oh my god, what the hell is that? Now, my favorite part of this, and from other things I've done, this is a common thing. This is a trait. It's a human trait many people share, that when you're confronted with something that makes absolutely no sense and your brain can't figure it out, a lot of people just sort of take it and jam it in somewhere <laughs> so that it makes sense. So two of those that happened that day is there was a couple walking across the bridge. The woman looks and goes, oh my God, there's a co is, that, what, is, that a, is that a coffin in the river? And the guy, without missing a beat, says in this very confident, knowledgeable way, uh, it's a Memorial Day tribute. At, uh, it's probably the VFW or the, or, or the AMVEST or whatever. <laughs> And it's just like, and she's like, I'm not sure, and they walk away. And I just, I love that. The other one was, this is like 20-something-year-old guy. He's going across the bridge. All of a sudden, he's yelling to me. He goes, have you seen there's a coffin down here? And so I, I go, a coffin? What? And I come over, and he says, yeah, it's down there. He goes, I went down into the, 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 the gorge, and uh, I think it's a homeless guy is keeping his stuff in it. And I said, well, well, how would that work? It's out in the middle of the river. He goes, I know, but I think he's got a hidden rope. And he probably pulls it in and puts his stuff in there. And I'm like, it's less than 24 hours, and legends are springing up. And I'm like, this is, this is so cool. So this all day Saturday, I entertained myself with this. Sunday morning, I get up. I go back down. The bridge is gone. Um, I'm, I'm disappointed, but not too surprised, you know. Uh, so I, I get down into the gorge, and I find it. And it's been dragged out, out onto the ground, and it's been all broken up. And I'm assuming, you know, this is another testament to teenage nighttime destructiveness. You know, I never underestimate that as a force. But I'm kind of puzzled, like, how would the teenagers have got it out of the river? You know, they can be ingenious when it comes to destructive stuff. So later that Sunday, uh, on, a, on, a, on a whim, I kind of go on the Newton police thing just to check. And sure enough, there's an entry. The Newton police were called on Saturday night to Echo Bridge. So somebody must have reported it. So now I'm feeling kind of bad. I didn't want to like waste the police time on this stuff. 
And I thought that was the end of it. But then about two weeks later, I ran into my friend Evan, who lives right across the street from the gorge. He says, did, I, did you hear what happened two weeks ago? He said, I come home on a Saturday night, and the whole street's full of blue lights, and I pull in, and there's like three or four state police cars there. And I was like, what the hell's going on? And the police say, uh, there's something out in the river, and uh, we got to go out and check it out. But we need a boat, and the nearest boat's in Worcester, so it's going to be about an hour. And, there's a, and uh, so Evan says, well, you know, I've got a canoe. I could take you out there. And they said, would you do that? And he said, sure. And they are, cancel the boat. And so we said, so I take these two, uh, two state troops. We carry the canoe down. We put it in the river, and I paddle them out. And it's dark. It was kind of cool going up the gorge in the dark. We get out there in the middle, and there's this coffin floating in, in the river, and there's a body in it. And the body's got this skull, and they gave me the skull. I have it in my house. <laughs> so uh, this kind of got out of control. And, you know, probably a number of you are Massachusetts taxpayers. I apologize for squandering the state police resources. That was not my intent. Um, the good news is, though, uh, I was not busted. That was good. Uh, and that probably means there'll be other unexpected and inexplicable things in uh, my neighborhoods coming up. Let's welcome to the stage Eric J. Eric J. I want to talk a little bit about my godmother, who I've been thinking about a lot recently. Now, she retired from her job. She was a teacher um, the year that I was born. So I, you know, so she must have been, you know, in her 70s by the time I kind of had consciousness of her presence. And uh, well, we were friends. And she was a very genteel woman from Mobile, Alabama. Um, which was not to say that she was traditional. She was very ahead of her time in many ways. She was very progressive politically. And uh, she also helped out a lot. She didn't have any children of her own, so she helped out a lot in terms of parenting. Like when I was having trouble getting to school on time, I remember I had to go to the kitchen and call her every morning when I was leaving the house to go to school. And then after a certain number of days, she would send me like these books there was a series of books that I wanted, and she would send me one of the books. So in that way, she got a little competitive with my grandmother, and my grandmother would always ask me, like, who do you like better, me or Mrs. Myers? <laughs> and I would always say, Mrs. Myers. <laughs> but yeah, we were friends. And um, like I said, she was, she was somewhat conventional, and part of it was because her husband was this very, very volatile German psychiatrist, very old school, and you know he didn't take things lightly. So a lot of her job was sort of to keep things smooth, going smoothly around the house. And you know, so I remember like as a kid, I, I was eating lunch there, and I spilled some water on the table, and he was like, why must this be so? And um, so he was very much like that. Um, he was, he actually, to his credit, he was Twitter way before its time because he would buy three copies of each paper in New York when there were still newspapers. One for reading and saving, and two to cut out articles and mail to people with commentary, okay? 
But, and this is where the Twitter part comes in, as soon as he had finished sealing the envelope, he had to go mail it immediately so it would get to them as quickly as possible, which sometimes meant it was the middle of the night. He would take, they lived up in New York near Columbia University. He would take the subway downtown to the main post office and he was mugged three times, okay? So Twitter got nothing on him. Anyway, um, Anne was, outlived her husband and she lived to be 99 or Mrs. Myers. And um, we were getting ready for her 100th birthday. And, you know, we pretty much assumed that she would live to be 100. And I was planning her birthday. And her, her, her daughter-in-law, who I ended up knowing, um, was also planning it. And just a month or two short of her birthday, she, she suddenly passed away peacefully, quietly, um, which was kind of unexpected in itself. but. You know, we kind of, at the same time, you know, at the funeral, it wasn't one of these really sad funerals because we know she had lived a long life and had a lot of friends. And so we were sort of told, instead of giving traditional eulogies, tell some stories about this person's life. So I thought I had a really good story. And I was telling her about, I was t my story was about how her, her really strenuous efforts to keep um, everything organized. And the story that I told was about how her husband, who actually treated patients for addiction in their apartment, I guess before a lot of rehab places existed, because I would go up there, and sometimes there would be people pretty like violently detoxing in their guest bedroom. And, um, and seriously, I, you know, I think at that time there weren't really facilities except horrible places for this kind of thing to happen. And you know, so she would minister to these people as well as, as he did. So anyway, we've, we found a bunch of old medicine that he had because he had all this intravenous medication around the apartment that he would use you know, in the, as part of this detox. And we found one vial that was just a clear liquid and it didn't have a label on it. And uh, she said, you know, can't, can't we, let's throw this one away. And he said, no, label it unknown and save it. And so I thought, that was a pretty good story for the funeral, so that's the story I told at the funeral. <laughs> and, then, um, and then the next person gets up and says, of course, there was the time that Anne was kidnapped by the Russian mob. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, I didn't know that. She'd never talked about that with me. And this is a funeral eulogy story. I don't remember it that exactly. But um, her husband had treated somebody who was somehow related to the Russian mob, had detoxed that person, gotten him back out into society. And, and, and the person's wife or somebody who was related to that decided that you know she was the wife of a doctor. She must have some money, which they didn't, I don't think. And, um, and so got called her to Brighton Beach, said, do you want to have tea? Do you want to have coffee, whatever? And she said, that's great. It would be nice to come and meet. And she went out to Brighton Beach on the subway, and the woman handcuffed her to a radiator. <laughs> and she was there for like three days, during which time she kind of talked them out of kidnapping her, upon which she was released, never reported it, as far as I know. I don't know why. 
And I, you know, I tend to think that somebody probably intervened and said, hey, you know, the, you know, this was sort of someone did this as a freelance project and somebody else in another part of the Russian mob was like, these people just helped us. Why, why, why are we doing this? But anyway, anyhow, she got home and this was the, this was the story at the funeral that I, that I had never heard before. And this is very surprising to me because, you know, this is my friend. I thought I knew her and it was kind of like, what? And I, what that made me realize is that, like, if you listen to people long enough, even if you think you know everything about them, or if you think they don't have, they told you everything they already have to tell you, these, like, what moments keep coming out? Um, like, I don't know, like, I had, a, I had a date fairly recently where we were talking about how long-distance relationships didn't work, and she was like, yeah, that's why I got married. And, and I was like, what? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, but th those kinds of things happen. And, um, you know, so that, that made me realize that, you know, it's as important to listen as to kind of tell the stories because that's where that kind of stuff comes from. So thank you. Put your hands together for David Eli. Come on up to the stage, there he is. Hi folks, I call this the uh, gathering storm. Uh, let me uh, just um, set the scene for you. Uh, I was driving back from college, which was in western Ohio, back to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in western Pennsylvania. And uh, so I was driving across uh, rural Ohio on Interstate 70 going east. And uh, in the car was uh, my good friend Jeff, who was driving because he was a, a fellow student. He was, I was giving him a ride back to Pittsburgh. And, I, he had agreed to drive the first leg of the journey, and I was going to drive the second half. And uh, in the back seat was a high school senior. She was visiting her brother, who also went to college with me, and I had offered to give her a ride back to Pittsburgh also. So there we were, all together, uh, driving across Ohio on our way back. And, um, and in, in, the, um, in the behind us, there was a beautiful summer sunset, uh, but in front of us was a really ominous, dark, dark uh, collection of clouds. And um, so we were driving along, and I was, you know, I was thinking, gosh, it's, it's getting really dark out there, you know. And um, and as we got, as we went a little further and a little further, it just got really, really dark and ominous. And and you know, I was feeling a little nervous just because, you know, I mean, it's. It happens, to, you all know, when you drive, it, one of the most challenging things is to like, be driving in a downpour at night. And so I was a little worried, and I look over at Jeff, and uh, he was a bit of a space shot anyway. So uh, I look over at him, and he's kind of gripping the wheel, and he's all hunched forward, and he was kind of muttering things to himself. <laughs> and, and I was saying, is he talking to himself? Um, and I was thinking, maybe I better just kind of offer to... Um, switch drivers now, but just at that moment, there was a huge bolt of lightning that started from the sky straight down to the ground, right on the horizon, directly where we were headed. 
and um, have you ever seen like a scary movie where, you know, it's all dark and dim and suddenly there's a flash of lightning that reveals like a horrifying scene? Well, that's what happened to me. Uh, I looked over at my friend Jeff and his whole body has, has arched up as if, as if maybe he'd been shocked by that electric bolt, you know, from the, from the lightning. And then he let go of the wheel and turned around and began to climb into the back seat. And I, uh, uh, this is surreal. I mean, the car is going 60 miles an hour in that direction. He's climbing into the back seat that way. But I didn't have too much time to like ponder this because uh, we were just about to go off the road. So I reached over and I grabbed the wheel and for about three or four, you know, heart uh, stopping seconds, we were careening from, you know, guardrail to guardrail. As I was trying to control the car, I'm clawing at my seatbelt to try to get it off so I can slide over and get control of the car. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> this girl in the back seat, Gigi, she was like having none of it. This guy is climbing back on top of me. He's supposed to be driving the car. Get back there. So she had been busily shoving him back up. So finally, I get the seatbelt off and I slide over, I get control of the car, but by now she has successfully pushed him back. So he's now kind of scrunched between, he's like this, between me and the driver's side door, he's just like, you know. Finally, I pull the car over and I, and I bring it to a stop and I look and I said, get out of this car now. And he said, Dave, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I just need to rest, I just need to rest, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. So he goes over and sits down by the side of the road. It was summer, you know, the windows were open. And um, I'm sitting there trying to calm down, trying to get my, my breathing back to normal. My heart was racing. Uh, poor Gigi's in the back seat going, huh? she was sobbing, you saved my life, you saved my life. And anyway, slowly everybody, a kind of peace settled upon us. I mean, after all, no one had been killed. The car wasn't, you know, damaged, we were okay. We just had to recover. So I looked out the window at Jeff and I said, okay, Jeff, come on, get back in the car. He stands up and he walks over to the passenger side window and he looks in at me and he says, Dave, I'm just gonna lie down in the back. I need to just rest, you know? And I said, yeah, well, I, 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 why don't you just sit up front here with me? Okay, that would be better. He said, well, I kind of whined a little. No, Dave, I really just need to go in the back and rest. And, um, I was, I didn't want him behind me. What if he had another freak out, you know, and started grab I me? Mean, I didn't know what to, I wanted him right there, you know, where I knew where he was. So um, I insisted, he resisted, I insisted, he resisted. Finally I said, Jeff, get in the car now. And he looked at me and he shook his head mournfully and he said, but Dave, you know the car is going to explode. I was stunned into speechlessness by this bewildering statement. He turned and walked off up the, the embankment of the highway. And uh, finally, I got my voice back and went, Jeff! But it was too late. He ignored me. He just walked off into the Ohio night with a storm gathering. Well, on the way home, we were like, gee, I hope he's OK. I don't know, but you know, he's somewhere in Ohio. Um, well, long story short, I got back to, 
to, to school on Monday and found out that he was very lucky because the very first place he rent, arrived at was a home for runaway teenagers. And apparently, they spent most of the night proselytizing to him and trying to get him to come to Jesus. <laughs> but uh, I don't think it did any good because he still had a tendency to eat too many marijuana brownies just like he did the night of the uh, gathering storm. Thank you. Okay, please welcome to the stage Kristen Knowles. Kristen. So this is one of those stranger than fiction stories. Uh, I was in Guatemala, I was 28. I'd been there for three weeks. I was staying at a Spanish school. I met three women there who were my age and a little bit younger. And um, I was hanging out with them. They seemed very nice. Um, and we decided after three weeks that we were going to leave Spanish school and take a little trip, like let's go do something exciting. So we said, OK, let's go to Livingston, which is on the coast of Guatemala, um, on the Caribbean. Um, and it has a Garifuna com community of uh, former slaves and people from the West Indies, and it's just got this really rich culture that's like unlike anything else in that, in that country. So uh, we embark. The night before we're supposed to leave, I'm hanging out with them and we're telling stories, and I said, oh, let me do a poem for you. And um, it was really disastrous because unexpectedly, Okay, so the name of my poem is In God We Trust, and the first line is right-wing, white, king, Bible-belted boys. And they were evangelical Christians from Iowa. <laughs> so we're about to embark on this journey, <laughs> and they're all like, ugh, like, uh, we don't really like you at all anymore at all. So it was very tense. Okay, so we go to the bus station in Guatemala City at about 7 in the morning. And it's about 40 minutes before our bus leaves. And we get directed to our bus. OK, that's the one we're going to take. They take our luggage, throw it up on top. And then I've got my backpack with all you know, the important stuff in it, like my plane ticket and my um, glasses and all the poetry I've written, like all this stuff that I've gotten there that's really important to me that I want to keep with me while I'm sitting on the bus. And um, I step on, and there's a guy standing there, and there's a driver. And I say to the guy standing there, I say, Esta seguro? Can I leave my backpack here? Because everyone else was doing that. And so I did. Well, I stepped off the bus because there was a chicken vendor and a water vendor. And I thought, ooh, that would be lovely, chicken later. And you know. Um, and so within that matter of maybe a minute and a half, the guy who I asked if it was safe grabbed my backpack and ran out the back door of the bus with everything in it that I had. Luckily, when I was traveling, I learned to keep my uh, passport on me and a credit card and some money. I used to hide things like all over my body in one sock. I actually still always have money in my shirt. I've got my car keys right here. I kid you not. Like, <laughs> I got robbed three times when I was in Guatemala, so it stuck with me. Okay, but anyway. So I'm sitting on the bus with my chicken and my bottle of water and like everything else gone except for the things that are on top of the bus. And of course, I just start weeping. And the weeping turns into sobs and I'm just like a mess and I've got, I'm such a mess, it's awful. And the girls that are with me 
really aren't offering any consolation. They're just like, oh my God, you idiot. Why did you leave your backpack there? And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. Okay, so I start to, you know, de-escalate myself as much as I can, <laughs> you know, and, um, and I'm like, okay, I drink some water. I pick up my chicken and I'm like, okay, I'm really hungry. I didn't have dinner last night. I'm eating it and I bite in and it's totally not cooked. Oh my God, it was like so not cooked. It's the least cooked piece of chicken I've ever bit into. So I'm like, ugh, and I throw it on the floor. And as I do that, I notice that there's something going on and it's cockroaches. And then I look on the wall and I turn and I look at the ceiling and I'm like, oh my God, there's cockroaches everywhere. And there were, there really were, they were everywhere on this bus. It was insane. Okay, so we're going around all these mountain bends and like I'm sweating and it's awful. And this little kid who's sitting right across the aisle from me starts throwing up in the aisle. And so you can well imagine when you're going up a mountain, the vomit slides this way. When you're going down, it goes the other way. You go around a curve and it's like, oh, it's coming towards me. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> we finally get to the place where we're supposed to take a minivan to a boat to Livingston. So we get in the minivan and there's too many people booked. So I'm standing up for this entire like three hour ride in a minivan with like nine other people. And I'm just like this still weeping like all day long. It just came and came and came and the, you know, all day long. Okay, we get to the boat. We take this boat through these mangrove forests and it's beautiful and there's egrets and I'm still just like, <laughs> I'm a mess, I don't have a camera anymore. Um, <laughs> we get to Livingston and oh, we're here. We can go to some place and get clean. I can unpack my backpack and see what I, can, you know, salvage and whatever. I <clears throat> walk into town, <laughs> walking down the street, and the very first alley we pass, we see this group of people all circled up. And a man walks by us and he goes, Oh, man's been murdered. <laughs> He's stabbed. <laughs> and we're just like, Oh my God. This was one day that all of these things happened, right? Oh my God. Anyway, um, but after that actually, I mean, I didn't know what to expect when I woke up the next morning, but um, it was the worst day. <laughs> it got better. So. All right, put your hands together for Margie, Margie. Margie. Margie, come on to the stage. I work at DY High School. I'm a vocational assistant in the special ed department. And this is my ninth year starting the school year. And when I was uh, applying for this job, I was reviewing my resume. And because I had wanted a career in the arts as an actress early on, my resume had jobs that were 
mostly about two years in duration. And I thought, that doesn't look so good. And then um, I worked a little bit in newspaper publishing and textbook publishing. And um, actually, I worked at the Cape Cotter newspaper here for a while. I worked in uh, radio. And the job I had the longest when I went on that interview, I had worked at the Latham School in Brewster for seven years. Yay! And, um, but I thought, how am I going to explain this when I go to my job interview? Because it just doesn't look like you're a very... Uh, stable person or reliable. And uh, I decided, though, that the job I was applying for was a vocational job. And the idea was to show kids where to work and how to work and how to be uh, responsible, show up on time, dress appropriately, blah, 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 and learn different strategies for certain tasks. And I thought, well, that just is, that's great. It shows that I've had all these different jobs. I've had all these experiences. I'm flexible. I can learn. Um, so anyway, one of the jobs I had, like William, was waitressing. And uh, the first waitressing job I had was in Michigan on Mackinac Island. And it, it was, there was not a lot of training, unfortunately. My second waitressing job was for the Magic Pan, and there was a lot of training. We didn't have scrod school, but we spent time with the, all the different sections of the restaurant. So anyway, the summer in, in uh, Mackinac Island, I, they, they had you do, it was like a swing job. You waitress for a week and you hostess for a week and you were a um, chambermaid for a week. And it was sort of one of those nice intros to adult life where my family wasn't around. I lived in a big old building with a bunch of other college kids who were working at this resort. And actually the building had been the hospital, the island hospital. And it was infested with bats, but that's not really part of the story. Anyway, um, so I was 21, 22, and not a very sophisticated drinker, and light beer was fairly new at that time, I guess, and so I drank light beer by Miller, and waitressing, as William said, was very stressful, um, and as I said, I wasn't trained, so I don't know, you'd forget the roles, all sorts of difficulties presented themselves. One day, when I was having a really bad day. I was like, oh, I can't wait to be done, go to the lake, do some swimming, and have a light beer by Miller. <laughs> and so my priorities being straight, I decided when I was finished with my shift, I would go home and get on my suit, get on my bike, go to the lake and go for a swim. So I did, it was beautiful. It was a clear day, clear water, swimming around all by myself. And I thought, gosh, I really can't wait for that light beer by Miller. And I was swimming around, and then I saw something floating by. And I took about three steps, five steps, and I went over, and there was this plastic ring, and I picked it up, and there were two light beers by Miller attached. <laughs> So that was unexpected. <laughs> and then I decided that those two beers were a gift from God, and I shouldn't drink them. So I kept them for years as sort of a good luck charm. And when I was out of school, I moved to Cape Cod, and I lived with my sister in a small apartment in Chatham. And. Uh, the beers were just part of my 
collection of stuff. And one summer, my mom came to visit. And again, I was working. I can't remember what job I was working then. But uh, I came home from work. And she said, uh, you know, you guys don't have any bourbon or vodka or anything like that. And I said, no, we don't. And she said, I did find a couple of light beers by Miller. <laughs> and she put them in the fridge, I guess, early in the day. And she said, they were pretty skunky. <laughs> so my mom drank my light beers by Miller. And that's my story. Thank you. So welcome to the stage, Martha Clark. I'm going to have a word with this pair later because um, I actually came here early tonight and I wasn't let in because the doors weren't open yet. And then I went, well, I'll go downstairs and I'll sign up early thinking that that meant I was going to be like in the first one or two. <laughs> Uh, and I'm convinced you guys deliberately <laughs> folded up my ping so small that you knew mine was at the bottom to keep me on my toes. Maybe you didn't, I don't know. Um, and then I sat down at the back and I kind of went, I'll get my notes for the story that I wrote a couple of days ago. And I left my notes back in the office. So anyway. <laughs> um, so some of you know I'm an astrologer. Um, so I was going to give you like a little bit of a mini unexpected astrology lesson at the start of my story. Um, it's a little bit about Uranus. Uranus is the planet of genius and innovation and kind of things happening out of the blue to, to, to you in your chart. Um, and I'm actually quite Uranian. I didn't realize that until a couple of years ago. So as some of you may have known from my other stories, I moved to Italy in November 2014 um, to develop my photography and to live the beautiful Italian life for the rest of my life. And as you can see, I'm here now. <laughs> <laughs> That's another five stories in itself. Um, but um, I had gone to my astrologer a couple of months earlier and kind of went like, you know, will you just get the map of Italy? Or will you get the map of Europe out? Because I've been trying to develop photography in Ireland and it was just wasn't working, it wasn't working. I was selling a few here and a few there and doing well, but not that well. So we got the map of Italy out and then I went to Italy and I did a business trip and um, just fell in love with the place. I hadn't been there for a couple of years and I'd forgotten how much I loved everything about Italy. And then I went back to Ireland and then I went back to Italy again and then I just couldn't settle. And I went into my business coach and she went like, there's nothing wrong with you. You just need to move to Italy because you left your soul there. And I kind of went, oh, and then she looked at me and said, what's stopping you? And I, and I said, nothing. And the minute she said that, I knew that was it. So unexpectedly, three weeks later, I was living in Italy. And I had just started studying astrology. Uh, no, my, my astrology teacher had put out like an, an, an email to everybody that he was going to be teaching again after many years of not teaching. And I looked at the email and kind of went, Jesus, I'd never be able to do that. And anyway, I'm moving to Italy. I'm living my dream through astrology. So he sent another newsletter. He sent another email just around Christmas time for the next set of classes for the following year. And I went, God, maybe I could do that. You know, I'm sure the prices aren't bad. And, you know, it's only like once a week for two hours. And sure I know how to use Skype and I've got the hang of Skype. So I'll try it and see how I get on. So I started studying with them and it was just like, I think, as I said, in one of the previous um, Mosquito Slams, it was like being a child in a sweet shop. I just like loved everything about it and I just got it all and I just understood everything and I just wanted more and more and more. So, you know, eight months later in Italy, I was still not really making it as an astrologer <laughs> or sorry, as a, as a photographer. And uh, <laughs> um, you can tell I'm a triple Gemini, can't you? And get my occupations mixed up. So um, I had a, so I was kind of had one last session with my business coach and I was saving it for dear life. 
and I had it over the space of an hour and like you know the temperatures in Italy were like 100 degrees and I was melting and I was sweating and I was sweltering and she kind of went like well you know maybe you could just do some mini astrology sessions and see how you get on and it was kind of unexpectedly one of the most defining moments of my whole life because I thought Jesus I could never do that no I can't no I couldn't I'll have to email my teacher and ask his permission first and she went like no you don't you don't need anybody's permission to do this and I went oh okay maybe I don't and I will always, always, always remember that night of just like, I didn't sleep a wink. I was, if I could have been physically sick, I would have. Um, so I posted on this business group that I'm a part of to, you know, offer a couple of 20 minute free mini sessions. And I was booked up within half an hour. And for like two or three days, I just didn't sleep. And I did like the sessions, um, 20 minutes and 20 minutes. And I had my Mac here and then I had my iPad here. So I was talking to them on Skype here and I had their charts here and I was, kind of going yeah can I do this can I do this am I a fraud am I a fraud and kind of I got on fine um because she you know I always remember my, my business coach saying to me and it's something that it's it's worth all of your rememberings like you know you know enough and you are enough because your clients don't know how much you know <laughs> or what you don't know and I kind of went yeah okay I get that <laughs> um so it kind of went from there and like you know of the eight people that I had booked like I think four of them booked paid sessions and it just kind of went from there and here I am four years later and um, well five years later now you know um, as an astrologer and um, so going back to Uranus it's the planet of genius and innovation and the unexpected and your authentic truth and you know when people are going through their Uranus opposition between the age of 38 to 42 it's very often if you're not living your authentic life you'll get like you know a shell shock out of the blue and there's a reason why it's kind of linked to the midlife crisis so it can be you know if you're not in the vocation that really makes your heart sing and um, that you'll just get fired from your job and I mean I've been fired from more jobs than probably the whole room put together I think I've been fired <laughs> I mean it I've been fired from about like five jobs at least um easily if not more um, but like you know during your Uranus opposition if you're not living your authentic truth it's when like you know your wife will leave you or your husband will have an affair or your house will burn down or you'll get seriously ill or you know your business will go bankrupt and you know, so for me, you know, I went to Italy and my heart and soul was set on being a, a photographer and I just became an astrologer, literally out of the blue overnight during Uranus transit to my natal Saturn. Uh, so the story of how I came to America is probably for the, uh, the, winter, the winter story. So thank you for listening to me. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Bite it live.